0: I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be reading through a lot of Mark, but i uh, got to start somewhere, so how about the beginning? Let's read verse 1, and then we'll pray together. beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would simply open it up to us, not that we might just gain knowledge, but that we might hear from you, Jesus, you calling us to yourself, and through your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would... um, captivate us. You would open up dull hearts and minds. I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So after spending so long, a year and a half going through the gospel of John, I thought we could do something a whole lot different, um, especially with it being the, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, knowing it would probably be a, a more small, intimate crowd. Um, we're going to just kind of walk through an entire gospel in about 40 minutes, all right? Uh, we're going to go through all of Mark together, and this really isn't going to be so much of a sermon because there's going to be some audience participation. I might get you to uh, um, to answer a few questions that throw out there. I'm, I might, depending on... Uh, the mood I'm in, make you get in small groups and look at certain passages together. Basically, I'm going to throw a lot at you as we go through a gospel. Um, But what I wanted us to do is just kind of gain an understanding of how do you read a gospel? I mean, we've just done it verse by verse by verse as we've gone through John, but holistically, what do you do when you come across a gospel? This Advent season, we want to behold Jesus. That's kind of the theme of Advent. Well, how do we behold Jesus in the gospel, and particularly in the gospel of Mark? And so we're going to look at things like um, different literary clues that the author might give us. Certain ways he repeats himself over and over to, to teach us certain theology about Jesus. And then what is the overarching theme of Mark that he really wants to hit home in our hearts? So, I want to begin just by defining what gospel is. It's, it's kind of hard to, to define what a gospel is. It doesn't fit neatly into any category, it's its own genre. And the best way I would describe a gospel is that it's a, bi- it's a biographical sermon. A gospel is a biographical sermon. It's, it's certainly a biography, a biography about Jesus, but it's also a sermon. It's not just random stories and teachings thrown together. It's ordered and structured in such a way to teach us something and to actually push us to a point of decision. So it's both biography and it's sermon. And we've saw that as we were going through the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John ends with these words Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. It's a great little summary of the gospel of John, but it's also a a clue as to what a gospel is. And basically, John is saying, listen, there's countless stories about Jesus out there. There's all of these teachings that are about Jesus out there. The world itself couldn't contain everything but I've selected some. I chose some of his miracles. I chose some of his teachings, and I decided to pull these together, these select few together, to present to you a certain message, to present to you a sermon, if you will, about who Jesus is. Yes, it's a biography, but it's also a sermon. And so John, he he selects these stories, he selects these miracles to push something on us. And for John, we got to see it was that Jesus was the unique son of God and that we are to believe in him. All of his stories, all of his teachings are to push that truth into us. He uses different literary devices. We don't have time to go through all of those, but the main literary device that John used was the I am's. He structured his gospel with seven I am statements of Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and and the life. I am the good shepherd. And through each one of these literary, this this literary structure of these I am's, seven of them, he wants to show us that Jesus is the unique son of God. And then to push us into a decision. And so when you're reading a gospel, you want to understand what, what the author is trying to say to you. And then ultimately, you want to hear what Jesus is trying to say to you, because Jesus is speaking through these authors. He is talking to us and and revealing himself to us. So let's look at Mark. All right, let's start walking through Mark and see what Mark's purpose is, what literary devices Mark uses to communicate his message. And once again, buckle up. We're going to go through a lot, all right? Um, Now, some of these I'm going to tell you, some of these I'll make you work for. Mark begins his gospel with verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right there at the start, he tells you what his whole gospel is for. He's uncompromising. He's direct in the purpose of his gospel. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the King. And he is the Son of God. Mark is super direct with you in this statement at the start Because he is going to show throughout the entire rest of his gospel that no one gets it. No one else is going to have the knowledge that you now have at the very start. The gospel of Mark is all about confusion. Everybody is confused as to who Jesus is when they encounter him. Uh, Everybody walks away from a conversation with Jesus with just more questions. And so you have things like in chapter one, he, he will cast out a demon, and it says that they're all amazed, but then they're like, what, what just happened? What is, what is this? Even the demons are like, why are you here? What are you going to do with us? In chapter two, he, he heals a paralytic man, and he forgives him, and all people do is have questions. Why does this man speak like this? Who does he think he is? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Later in chapter two, people are asking questions like, "Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? Why do his disciples not fast? Why why is him and his disciples breaking the Sabbath?" No matter what Jesus does, they're just more puzzled. In chapter four, Jesus he he calms the storm. You know, there's this basically almost a hurricane that's there, and Jesus just kind of calms it down. He says, "Be quiet and stay quiet to the wind and the waves." And instead of a confession by his disciples, there's only confusion. Who is this man that he can even command the wind and the waves and they obey him? In chapter six, Jesus goes to his hometown and he teaches. And he is bombarded with questions. People are asking, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom he has? How is he doing all of these miracles? Isn't he just a carpenter? I thought he was Mary's son. Question after question. You could go on, but I hope you get the point. Every time Jesus teaches, every time Jesus does a miracle, people walk away confused in Mark. Even when Jesus does parables, don't think of them as illustrations, trying to clarify his points. In Mark, he gives parables to confuse people. Every time he gives a parable, people walk away scratching their heads going, I didn't get that at all. And then Jesus has to gather his disciples together and say, all right, let let me tell you what everybody else is confused about. And even then, they often missed it. So Mark, at the very start of his gospel, has to give us in the clearest terms what he's setting out to do because he wants to show us, that no other human is going to get it throughout the entire gospel until we get to the very end. All right, so right after he he begins with this declaration, Mark goes full steam ahead. It's it's funny that we're talking about Mark um, at the start of Advent, the Christmas season, because Mark has no birth narrative. He's not interested in Jesus's origins. He doesn't start there. Jesus starts fully grown. So, uh, so no one reads from Mark to start an Advent series except for us. Um, there's no Jesus is a descendant of David. Jesus came from Bethlehem. This is how Jesus was born. There is none of that. Jesus starts in Mark fully grown on the scene, launching into ministry. And then the pace goes really fast Uh, let's look at verse 16 Um, let me read a few verses and i'll 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 ask you guys some questions all right passing alongside the sea of galilee he saw simon and andrew the brother of simon casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen and jesus said to them follow me and i will make you become fishers of men and immediately they left their nets and followed him And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. All right, we'll just stop right there. What, what is a word that, that keeps happening over and over in this? Immediately. 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 Mark uses immediately 11 times in chapter 1 alone. In the rest of his gospel, he will use it more than the rest of the New Testament combined. Everything is immediate for Mark. Because he's setting this relentless pace. He is setting this urgency by Jesus. He's just flying from pay, place to place to place. Look at all that he does in chapter 1 alone. In verses 14 and 15, he proclaims the kingdom of God, and he proclaims repentance, so he begins preaching. In 16 through 20, he calls disciples. In 21 through 28, he begins teaching again, and he casts out a demon. In 29 through 34, he heals Peter's mother-in-law, and then he heals pretty much everyone else around. In verse 35, he gets up really early before the sun comes up to pray because when else is Jesus going to have time? And he prays, and then he goes and he preaches at a bunch of synagogues, casts out a bunch more demons, and then it ends with him healing a leper. All right, That's chapter 1. A lot of the other gospels have Jesus doing one thing in a chapter. But then you get to Mark, and it's like, bam, 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 bam. There's no sense of time. He never even talks about time until we get to the cross. Everything is immediate. Everything is urgent. Ironically, Mark is the shortest gospel, yet it has more action than any of the others. And the term that the disciples call Jesus is teacher. Yet there's hardly any teaching in Mark. It's almost all action. Yet it's the favorite term that the disciples have of him teacher, teacher. And what Mark is trying to show us is Jesus teaches us who he is through his actions. You want to know who he is? Look at him casting out demons over and over and over. You want to know who he is? Look at him healing people over and over and over. You want to know who he is? Look how he can rebuke the wind and the waves. Jesus teaches us through what he does, that he is the unique son of God. Now, because Mark's pace is so unrelenting, we know when he does slow down, we should slow down. So, so if his pay stops, you better stop. If he gives you some additional details, you better pay attention. So I want us to look at one of those. Turn to Mark chapter 6. A great example of this is when Jesus feeds the 5,000 in Mark's gospel. Mark's account of things that the other gospels also write about is always shorter, typically. I shouldn't say always. It's usually shorter. There's a couple of exceptions. This is one of them. He actually writes this account much longer than a Matthew or a Luke, the story of Jesus feeding 5,000. You just have to wonder why. So let's look. We won't read the whole account, but let's look at chapter, or verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And then he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of him. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, let's go to verse 39. You're familiar with the story. I just want to pull out a few things. It says, Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups, On the green grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And then we see Jesus multiplying the loaves. All right. So Mark, he he takes time to tell this story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 longer than the other gospel writers. Then he adds details that are really unnecessary. And if Mark ever does this, stop. Pay attention. All right. So Mark, he... He says things like, the other Gospels, they say Jesus had compassion. Mark adds a detail. They had compa- he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's unique to Mark. The other Gospel writers said that Jesus had them lay down. Mark says he had them lie down in green grass. Not just grass, but green grass. And so Mark is using these extra details to evoke in us an image of Psalm 23. That's what he wants. He's like, you want to understand what Jesus is doing here in feeding the 5,000? you got to see that the Lord is my shepherd. He's the one who sees in my sheep without a shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in what? Green pastures. Then what does he do? He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So this is Mark's little subtle way of showing you. You know what? Jesus is the Lord that David was talking about. Jesus is Yahweh. He's the good shepherd. All this just from him slowing down and giving us this few extra little details. So anytime any gospel writer seems to slow down or throw out a detail that seems to be unnecessary, stop. Listen. Gospel writers don't waste words. Another literary device that Mark uses is threes. John had a fascination with seven. Uh, Mark has a fascination with threes. He likes to repeat a story three times. And for somebody who's not using many words, whose pace is relentless, the fact that you would repeat something three times, you got to kind of scratch your head and say, why? Why say the same thing three times? So Mark gives us three boat scenes with Jesus. In each one of these boat scenes, the disciples fail to comprehend who he is. Three times Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to be killed. Each time they fail to understand. Three times Jesus teaches his disciples that if you want to follow me, you got to deny yourself. Three times the disciples fall asleep while Jesus asks them to stay awake and pray. Three times Peter denies Jesus. And that action there is set in a course of three acts that were done to hurt Jesus. Judas' betrayal, Peter's denial, the apostles' abandonment of him. It's almost like Mark is hammering something in. And these threes, these blows of like, hear this, get this, pound this in you. So, so what do you think of, of those right there? What do you think Mark is pounding into us right there? Anybody? Those stories. Suffering. Suffering's in there. And the, I would say the disciples' inability to comprehend it. Every one of those stories, every one of these threes has the disciples' failure. It has man's Failure. We don't just kind of fail, we massively fail. And if you don't get it, Mark's going to pound it in you. We don't just kind of not comprehend who Jesus is, we have no comprehension of who he is. Pounds that in, pounds that in. Because he wants the big reveal at the end of how do we actually come to understand really who Jesus is? It's not going to be through all these miracles, it's not going to be through all these teachings. Even the disciples had that, and they failed repeatedly. Another literary device that Mark uses. Um, I, I love. these are fun to me. I hope they're fun to you. He, he, likes, he likes putting two stories side by side, each one of them shed light on the other. So he pairs up stories. They're not to be read individually. They have to be, they have to be read as a unit. Turn to Mark chapter 8, verse 22. I'm going to make you work for this one. All right? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. We'll stop right there. What a strange story that Mark includes. He's the only one who includes this story. Uh, And there's a lot of bizarre elements to it. All right, So everything else in Mark, he's healed people immediately. Immediately. But he comes to this blind man and what does he do? He doesn't heal him immediately. Actually, he takes him kind of by the hand and goes, let's get out of here. Let's get alone. And he takes the guy outside of the village. Strange detail, number one. Why doesn't he heal him immediately? And then he heals the guy, sort of. It's like the healing didn't take. It's like, okay, let me restore your sight. And he's like, well, you know, it kind of worked. It's better than it was. (laughs) Better than it was. But um, people kind of look like trees to me walking around. And Jesus is like, huh, okay, heals him again, and this time he sees clearly. All right, for one, nobody making up that Jesus is the Son of God is going to include that story, all right? Because it seems to look like Jesus failed. He messed up. Why does Mark put it in there? That it took multiple things. Jesus didn't heal immediately. He took him out. He wasn't healed perfectly the first time. It wasn't until that second time he finally got it. Well, then we have the story right after it with Peter. Peter. Jesus goes, who do people say that I am? Oh, you're the prophet, Elijah, John the Baptist. I'm like, well, no, you're blind. They're blind. Who do you say I am, Peter? Insight. You're the Christ. He has this, this moment where he sees things clearly, sort of. He doesn't quite get it. Anybody know how Mark's account is different than Matthew's account of this? In Matthew's account, Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's like, it's not there in Mark's account. and Mark, he just says, Thou art the Christ. You are the Christ. Now, I'm sure he said, You are the Son of God, but Mark chooses not to include that. Why? Because he knows Peter didn't get it. Peter didn't really understand it. And we know this because right after this, Jesus actually calls Peter Satan. (laughs) Like, get behind me, Satan. You don't know who I am at all. So there's this momentary flash of insight, sort of, not really. Then later he's going to come and understand it more in full. These stories are to be read right by one another. So what is Mark teaching us? Hey, it's great if we can have a road to Damascus kind of Paul experience in which blinders just come off but you know what a lot of times when the lord is revealing himself to us it's in stages he leads us away he gives us some insight he begins working on our hearts and then eventually we come to know him but it's all his work and his grace that he does this so that's another literary device that mark uses it's kind of fun reading these stories side by side now for my, my most fun literary device out there. I'm going to break you up into groups for this. Uh, it's called a Markian sandwich. All right? A Markian sandwich. And this is when Mark, he, he puts two stories right by each other, uh, but he actually puts three. He, he, he begins a story, he moves to another story, and then he goes back to that first story. So that, that first story is the bread. All right? It fits this A, B, A pattern. That's the bread. In the middle of those pieces of bread is the jam, all right? We're just going to call it. That's, that's the jam. That's the stuff right there. The bread sheds light on the jam, and the jam spreads light, sheds light on the bread. All right? And so he, there's this ABA pattern throughout. Turn to Mark 11. We're going to look at a really easy one. And then I'm going to give you some hard ones, all right? Mark 11, verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a, tree, or a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it into a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. All right. Stop there. So what are the pieces of bread? What's the the outside pieces? What is it? Fig tree. All right. You know, Jesus coming up on a fig tree and it ends with Jesus on a fig tree. So the, the middle piece is Jesus going into the temple. How do they shed light on one another? So Jesus, he goes to a fig tree and he wants fruit. There is no fruit. So he curses it. Jesus goes to the temple. What is he looking for? He's looking for fruit. He doesn't find it. You can see the actions that he does there as Jesus is cursing it and saying, I end this. No one will eat fruit from here again. And then Jesus goes back and he sees, they all see that fig tree. Look, what you cursed is withered. And he's like, that's right. The stories shed light on one another You have to understand the middle to understand the pieces of bread, and you have to understand the pieces of bread to understand the middle. The gospel of Mark is full of these, absolutely full of these. So what I'm going to do is, all right, this group here, all right, we're dividing kind of the middle, unless I divide, you know, married couples. I don't want to do that. So you guys over here, this is what I want you to do. You're going to read through this text. And what I want you to do is identify the bread, identify the jam, and then come up with what you think it means. Here's your text. Mark 3, verses 19 through 35. This this group over here, it's going going all the way up to the balcony as well. All right? We're just the two of them. Uh, Mark 6, verses 7 through 30. Read through it, quickly identify, and then we're going to walk through this together. All right? All right. All right. So Mark 3, somebody tell me what was, what's the, the bread, what's the bread that's there? The outside piece. There's, there's Jesus's family, his earthly family is right there. So the story is this, there's Jesus's family, and uh, they go to seize Jesus, for they were thinking Jesus is out of his mind. And then it switches to what? This... This story, The Jam, which is about, okay, well, he's crazy, you know, he's, he's casting out demons because he's empowered by Satan himself, and then Jesus says, no, a house divided cannot stand, um, but no, you first go in and you bind the strong man, and, and then, then you could plunder him, and that's what he says he is doing, and then he says, I, I tell you this, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, but whoever, but whatever blasphemies they, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit Never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. Then what does it go back to? It goes back to Jesus' family. Jesus' earthly family, and it says that they're calling him to come outside. Come outside, come. And he goes, who's my family? Not you guys. It's those who obey God. The sandwich is, the bread is this. Jesus' earthly family doesn't believe disbelief they want to stop him Jesus talks about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit those who blaspheme against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven goes back to his parents or to his family unbelief and what Jesus is saying here it's, it's pretty direct how Mark puts this but hey family you're really close to blaspheming against the Holy Spirit Mary brothers you're this close because of your unbelief not just unbelief but you're actually attributing my works to saying I'm crazy that's very close to attributing attributing my works to Satan you're so close it's a powerful thing the way Mark sets it up so much so that when Matthew records it he decides to drop one of them it's like it's like wow can we say this about Jesus's family so directly and he softens it a little but Mark puts it out there for us. Nobody has a special privilege to Jesus. Everybody must come and believe. All right, so what was the other? It was, uh, how'd y'all do Mark 6? All right, so what's the bread? Jesus sends sends his disciples out. Uh, So that's the first piece of bread, all right? And the second is Jesus' disciples return. In between, what is the story? John the Baptist he gets killed because some woman dances and and just basically a guy loses his head and says I'll give you whatever you want. So how do they shed light on one another? Well, you have what is being sent out look like. Jesus sends out and yeah, I mean they're casting out demons, aren't they? They're like healing people, they're teaching. It's incredible. That's what they do when they're sent. That's what they report back to Jesus when they come back. But what's in the middle? You see the greatest proclaimer of Jesus who ever lived, and look what happened to him. Death, beheaded, disgraced, an embarrassing death. (laughs) And Mark is putting that out to us Say, okay, what awaits those who are sent out and boldly declare Jesus? What is your future? Well, look at, look at John the Baptist. Look at John the Baptist. Yes, you're going to go out in power. Yes, these great things are going to happen. But if this happens to the greatest proclaimer of Jesus, what's going to happen to you? So you, you find these Markian sandwiches all throughout the Gospel of Mark. They're really fun to read. But not only that, it helps you understand, Jesus, what are you saying? What are you teaching us? As we go through this, I've got, I mean, when I practiced this sermon, I had like an hour and a half, two hours. Um, There's so much I'm going to leave out. We're going to just, we're going to shoot to the end here. When, When you pull together like all these different literary devices and you try to get this overall picture, the overall, the overarching theme of Mark, once again, is Jesus is the son of God but he's setting this relentless pace for the big reveal that he is a son of God. And this is going straight to the cross. That's where Mark is heading all along. That's where he slows down to a crawl. When you get to the cross, you even get a hint at the, at the beginning of Mark, when Jesus is baptized, it says that the heavens were torn apart. And the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. All the other gospels are much more mild. It's like, and the and, the heavens were opened, but for Markets they were torn apart. And the only other time you see that is at the end of Mark, when it says the curtain veil was torn in two. And then right after that, you have another declaration. Surely this man was the son of God. This time by the first human being ever, by the Roman centurion. Those are the bookends in Mark. You have the tearing And then you have the declaration, this is the Son of God. And What Mark is saying is, you need to see the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he was baptized. He was baptized to die. Everything points to the cross in Mark. Because it's at the cross that Jesus is revealed to be the Son of God. So all throughout Mark, he does a miracle people don't understand. No one gets it. He teaches no one understands No one gets it. Not a single human being. Even Peter's confession falls short. Thou art the Christ. But he doesn't say thou art the son of the living God. But then you get at the very end, when Jesus is on a cross, this Roman centurion of all people, he looks at him, and when Jesus breathes his last, and he says, surely this man was the son of God. That's what Mark's been pointing us to all along. You want to know who Jesus is? You really want to know who he is? His whole ministry, he was going as fast as he could to this place here because that's where he best reveals himself as the Son of God, is at the cross. So from beginning to end in Mark's gospel, the cross defines it. Mark ends his gospel in an unusual way. He ends it in verse 8 of chapter 16. Some of you are like, wait a second, my Bible goes a little bit further. It shouldn't. Um, verses 9 through 20 are probably parenthetical in there. A lot of your Bibles might have it out completely. It's because it's just not in the earlier manuscripts. It's, it's an obvious addition. Um, it was added because verse 8 ends so abruptly, and they're like, well, who would end their gospel so abruptly? Well, Mark would if you've been paying attention. That's how Mark writes. And so, this is how Mark ends his gospel. Shortest account of the resurrection of all the gospels, because Mark's point is the cross. But he doesn't talk about the resurrection. And it ends in verse 8: And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Great way to end a gospel, isn't it? <laughs> Remember those threes? Hammering it in. What does he hammer in? Our failure. All humans fail. Even the resurrection itself afterwards, what happened? Failure. It's like they didn't get it. They still need the miracle of God to change hearts. Still has to happen. And I think Mark, he ends it that way because he almost, he's like saying, so what are you going to do? Church? Church? Are you going to just sit in your home scared, or are you going to declare the greatest message in all the world? What are you going to do? It's a challenge to us. Are we going to be transformed by Christ and boldly proclaim him, or are we going to say nothing to anyone because we are afraid? And of course, we know the whole story. The disciples weren't scared for long, but God, through his spirit, utterly transformed them. So the Gospel of Mark in just kind of a, a little nutshell, some things for you to look for. If you would, pray with me now. Our Father, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for your servants who wrote the Gospels and how we just get a, a little glimpse into how you use them in, uh, in creative and in bold ways to declare who you are. But ultimately, the Gospels are not a puzzle to figure out. They're to lead us to you, Jesus, and for us to hear you calling us. And I pray now in this moment we'd hear you calling us as we come to this table, that we would see you beautiful as the Son of God, as we remember your broken body and your blood. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.